so when they didn't see anything, they started doing recon by fire. And they would go pop, 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 pop to a sector and see if anybody fired back. Well, I had one M16 and a Browning 9mm, so I wasn't going to shoot anybody. Managua, Nicaragua. This is the biggest uprising in over 40 years since the Sandinista Revolution. The Reagan administration was just obsessed uh, with overthrowing the Sandinistas. Alexander Haig went so far as to ask the Pentagon to reduce options for military ditch against Nicaragua and Cuba. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. Today's guest is Rick Prado. Rick is the highest ranking CIA operative to ever lift the veil of secrecy on that agency's clandestine activities around the world, which he catalogs in his new book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Today, Rick is going to talk about his first mission in 1980 to help train and organize the Contra forces that were trying to take down the recently installed an increasingly repressive Sandinista regime in Nicaragua, which was being supported by Fidel Castro and the Cuban military. Rick's story is a rare first-hand glimpse into an event that was up until now cloaked in secrecy and was a precursor to the infamous and headline-grabbing Iran-Contra affair, which rocked the United States. Rick Prado is today's hero behind the headlines. So Rick, could you tell us first just a little bit about your background and how you got into the agency? Uh, most of my career, everything has been backdoor. Um, I was uh, I was a pararescueman. I went into pararescue in 1971. Uh, they wouldn't send me to Vietnam, so I applied for the agency in 74. They laughed and said, we're firing, not hiring. Huh. Uh, and I tried to get in 79, and this time they said, look, you know, if you're willing to work contract, um, as a medic, because I was a paramedic, obviously being a PJ, they uh, they needed they were trying to build up their and, and special activities division ground branch needed guys to who be, to be fully qualified medics, and I was a current EMT, and because I was still in the in the reserves, and uh, when the contra thing started, uh, and the and the uh, requirements came down, they were they were saying, well, remember that Cuban guy that was here was the PJ. It took them a couple of days until they, they were able to track me down, and, and they just called me cold turkey on the phone. At that stage, the agency did not have a single paramilitary officer with native Spanish capability that could pull off not being a gringo. Wow, that's stunning. That's, yeah. that's how they called me in, and yeah. I had no CIA experience. I didn't even I didn't have a clue what CIA did for a living. Um, I just spoke Spanish very natively, and... I was pretty fit at the time and, you know, I had my uh, pararescue skills and I, I had guys teaching me some of the stuff that I didn't know. I had never fired as a pararescue in an RPG-7. I ended up being, I, I must have fired 15 of them between practice and training. But I literally uh, hit, I was recruited and I, two weeks later, I, I was boots on the ground in Honduras. And the following week, I was, it was my first camp visit, my first visit to the camps. And yeah. The rest is history, as they say. Wow. So you were you were in the Miami area? You were living in... That is Florida. correct. I, yep. And, and at that point, you had had no exposure to Nicaragua or anything to do with that. But uh, you were born in Cuba, correct? I, I was born in Cuba. I was in Cuba during the revolution. I, I saw my first dead bodies during at the age of eight. Uh, and then I, I uh, came to the United States by myself through a, a program called Peter Pan which uh, took me to a wonderful orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado, where I started learning English and started learning how to fight. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So you had the whole background of having lived through a, a regime that came in and, and changed everything and promised all kinds of good changes, and then it started to turn dark and repressive. Very quickly. As a matter of fact, my dad's uh, small business was confiscated in uh, – in about six months. And, you know, I think that that was one of the highlights of, uh, of, of, all, my, uh, of all my tours. The Contra program means so much because as an eight, nine-year-old, I couldn't do anything about what was going on. And here I am now leading these guys. I'm the only guy in, uh, interfacing with the Contras in the North uh, and helping them fight that 
octopus to destroy my, my family and my first country. The octopus Rick is describing is communism. Just like Fidel Castro had done in the early 60s in Cuba, where Rick was growing up, so the Sandinistas tried to replicate in Nicaragua. In the summer of 1979, a coalition of guerrilla groups known as the Sandinistas seized power in Nicaragua from the Somoza family, which had ruled the country for 40 years and had grown increasingly repressive. The Sandinistas were supported by an enormous popular insurrection. Nicaraguans had grown tired of the Somoza dictatorship and expected a freer, more open society. What they got instead was a communist government that seized property, broke up businesses, and jailed anyone who criticized them. Increasingly, a group of disillusioned Nicaraguans in the northern part of the country took up arms against the Sandinistas. They called themselves the Contras, or the opposition. Right, so when you got the call to join the Contras or to, to help coordinate with them, you felt this was an opportunity that I'm like perfect for, I'm prepared for, correct? Yeah, and as a matter of fact, when they called me, uh, they said, uh, "Hey, listen, we have something you might be of interest." I only, I didn't even, I didn't even know what it was. I just said, "Is it short term or long term?" And they said, "It's long term." And I said, "Put me in." So then I found out it was Nicaragua. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but they did know that I was Cuban born, and they knew a yeah. little bit about that background. So yes. and you knew they knew you had the language skills and so absolutely, on. yeah. At the time, even at the time, I was still a four plus kind of stuff in Spanish. So. Okay, fantastic. So let's go back. Uh, I guess we're talking 1981, 82, 83, and beginning of 84. I was there for a little over three years. And for the first 14 months of that program, I was the only CIA officer in the camps. Uh, and I slept in a jungle hammock mon Monday through Friday for pretty much three years. Wow. Okay, so let's, let's go back and tell us about, um, if you would, how you first deployed, what you found, and kind of what your, you know, what your mission was, what your instructions were. Okay. Um, I, I hit um, Honduras uh, with about two weeks of headquarters time, no training, uh, some briefings, and but the most, the most important thing was my alias docs. I was there in alias um, Alex, and um, Got to Honduras. Uh, they provided me with with my the Hondurans provided me with the Honduran credentials, um, and my boss at the time, Colonel Ray. Uh, it was only five people in the unit at that time. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was very very anorexic, and we had five logs of, people from the C CIA were assigned that's, that's, to this. That is correct. Wow. At the very beginning, uh, and Ray was the chief. Mm -hmm. uh, he had a deputy, we had a logistics guy and, and uh, a case officer and then myself as, as the PM officer. And what Ray, who just arguably the best boss I ever had, said to me, he says, look, your job is to go out there, make them love you and make them need you. I said, <laughs> aye, aye, chief, moving. So uh, I hit the camps. I, uh, I got some really good uh, photos right off the bat of how bad the situation was. Yeah, because I had heard it was very, very primitive um, in the beginning. Uh, at yeah. the beginning, it was literally subsistent living. These guys were in shorts, no boots, or old rifles that they had been able to capture. The The Argentines had given them some uh, some Mausers that were from Israel wow. that had been rechambered to 308. And uh, that that was one of and, and the AKs that they picked up here and there and whatever. So, But it was a hodgepodge. Now, these guys initially, were they ex-Samosa? Uh, Negative. Uh, no. Yeah. The, the, the leadership, in, especially in the north, just like in the south, the, the leadership was Eden Pastora, um, former Sandinistas. The, 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 the ruling part, you know, uh, uh, Enrique Bermudez, who was the colonel in charge, great guy uh, who was assassinated by the Sandinistas. Um, and so some of the, the, the camp commanders were Somosista. The majority of the troops were peasants. Just really? regular folks. And the beauty about that, and, and this is a very important point, the reason that it was so satisfying with me, because every night when I was in the camps, I would pick a different group to sit with and have a cup of coffee. And I would ask them, why are you here? None of them said, because I read Marx and Lenin. It was, they burned my church, they beat up my priest, they raped my daughter, they wow. forcibly conscripted my son. Yeah. Um, so it was so it was very satisfying. It was yeah. all personal, and it was personal for me. 
Yeah. It made it yeah. even more personal for of me. Of course, of course, of course. And and how many in the initially how many people were there? How many men were there? You know, there were several hundreds. Um, but again, it was it was even hard to count. They had ten camps, um, four of them in the Mosquitia with my Mosquito Indians, which I loved, and uh, and I got a great story with them. Uh, and then the the other camps were the, the Spaniards, as as, as they Mosquitoes called them. Uh, when the Sandinista government came to power in 1979, they moved to consolidate their control over the Mosquito. The Mosquito Indians, as they were called, are a native people that intermarried with former African slaves, many of whom had escaped from shipwrecks. They live along the eastern coast of Nicaragua and Honduras. These people are fiercely independent. The Sandinistas came down on them with particular aggression, imprisoning them, torturing them, and putting them in relocation camps, which further heightened the Mosquito resistance. Increasingly, they joined the countries to help fight the Sandinista regime. So yeah, there they were several hundred, but they, they were coming in every day. They were having more. And the reason they didn't have more is because they had no food and no weapons. Yeah. As soon as we were able to start providing even a modicum of medical food and weapons, uh, they were pouring in. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. And so it was your job to open the supply lines uh, and kind of organize these guys? Or what yeah. was your particular... My, your- my job was everything. Every single bit of training. So when they got the the 50 cals, I taught them how to do the headspace and timing. When they got the wow. RPGs, wow. I, sh- I taught them how to shoot the RPGs. Um, patrolling, uh, communications. Uh, there's a couple of good photos on the book. So, uh, But it was um, very hands-on. Uh, all, every single one of those commanders. And I developed a, a very strong relationship and friendship. Uh, guys like Mike Lima, to who this day were... We're, we're good friends because I pulled his ass out when he blew his arm off. Wow. I'm the guy who, I'm the guy that uh, that put him in the chopper. Um, so, but um, we we started very quickly sending them in. They started doing raids. They started doing ambushes, and the, you know, getting that confidence, getting that practice. And uh, I would say uh, probably about ten months into uh, eight eight or nine months into the program, uh, they um, headquarters said we need to do something with a little bit more oomph. Up to this point, the Contras were executing small raids against government outposts and Sandinista headquarters in the sparsely populated northern part of the country. After eight months, Rick got instructions from CIA headquarters to up the ante and try to inflict some real damage on the Sandinistas. That's when Rick came up with a plan to hit the eastern port of Puerto Cabezas. This was the closest port to Cuba and was being used by the Cubans to bring in personnel, supplies, and weapons. By then, I knew the Mesquitia uh, pretty well, and I knew the Puerto Cabezas was just a, a long swim away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I had um, I had met some Mesquito divers uh-huh. uh, that were with the Contras. And, and now, so, just for the audience, we're talking about the East Coast. Now. That is correct. Yeah, right. the, oh. the East Coast of Nicaragua and a little bit of Honduras it's called the Mosquitia, and uh, that's primarily settled by the indigenous Mosquito, um, um, uh, Sumo, and Rama tribes. Those are the three. Uh, and a lot of blacks because there was a lot of uh, shipwrecks there, so there was a very good mix of that. Uh, they speak their own language. They, they, they barely speak Spanish. But anyway, so what, what happened was uh, I came up with the idea that we would hit Puerto Cabezas because Puerto Cabezas uh, was at the time the belly button for all Soviet aid coming through Cuba, it was going straight into Puerto Cabezas. And you're talking the oil, the ammunition, whatever supplies were coming in, that, that, was, that was the main belly button for, for the Sandinistas. So I said to headquarters, look, you know, if we could blow up that, that, uh, that, that facility, um, and I got some guys that are probably able to do it. So they came up with a plan, a very sophisticated 80-pound boom, and I spent three weeks on a deserted island training these guys on compass swims, how to use an attack board, and how to tie this stuff underneath the bridge. Uh, there were four of them. There's a fantastic photograph of it in the, uh, in the book with uh, my guys with the actual device and me standing above them. Um, so we went out of uh, Puerto Limpida on a, on a panga boat, you know, a, a hauled-out canoe to meet a PT boat 
that was on the other side of the lagoon in Puerto Limpira. And the, uh, the, the mission didn't start too well because as we were ready to come out to the ocean, one of the waves hit the boat so hard that the engine, the little kicker engine, started f flying off the, the boat. <laughs> and I reached over, grabbed it, and manhandled it back in, but fell overboard and ripped my arm, warp, my arm open. So now oh I'm bleeding all over the place. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. I'm going like, this is not a good omen. But the rest went like clockwork. So um, we got on the PT boat, got the panga on the PT boat. The bomb was already there. And we had timed it to where we would be sailing into Nicaraguan waters under dark. Okay. We got our guys to about uh, three miles from, from Puerto, Puerto Cabezas. And so I jumped in the water. The, uh, we brought lowered, my, my divers went in, lowered the panga, uh, lowered the bomb, and gave them last minute instructions like, don't forget to charge the damn thing. Right. And uh, they went in and uh, they put the device down. They came back out. I picked them up, got them back on the boat. And we were out of Nicaraguan waters when the device went off. Uh, this was March of uh, 82, maybe? 82. 82 I remember, I remember yeah. reading about that. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and, and it's funny because a little bit of that news came out, but the Sandinistas embargoed it immediately. I'm sure. I'm so sure. there's, very, yeah. But they, yeah. Uh, and, and I will tell you, I was seeing the, uh, the following day, uh, a couple of days later, seeing the satellite overhead that I knew I had cut off some of those tentacles of that octopus. It was a very good feeling. So that, that mission was very successful. Um, everybody at headquarters was, you know, drinking champagne or whatever they were doing. Just to provide a little bit of context, the relationship between the Sandinistas and Fidel Castro was very important. My father, Lawrence Pizzullo, was the United States ambassador to Nicaragua starting in 1979. And he warned the Sandinistas not to get too close to the Cubans because the United States would never tolerate a communist regime in Central America. But Fidel Castro and his representatives, being who they were and being aggressive, could not resist the opportunity to infiltrate the Sandinista government and direct them, which they did, and which ultimately led to the United States supporting the Contra movement in Nicaragua. Because I remember going in 1980 for the first anniversary of the revolution right and there were cubans all over the place. all over the place they yeah. were following me everywhere right yeah. and i i was i was shocked because yeah, it was both the military in training and the uh the intelligence services the also intelligence training service them. was we're, everywhere everywhere yeah, they were everywhere and this and the nicaraguans were surprisingly like naive about there what the cubans were up to i mean they sort of trusted them in a very naive way Right. Well, I, I, there are I friends saying, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, I think the the uh, the uh, the leadership of the Sandinistas knew who they were dealing with because they were they were they had the same goals. They wanted to establish a Cuban-like government. But you're right. The masses at the very beginning took it as they're here to help us. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. That was they, sort of the yeah. attitude. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That was sort of the attitude. So that was the first sort of public uh, big operation against yes, the Sandinistas. So that so you really got their attention. At that point, did, yeah. did you was there an increase of uh, attention from the Sandinistas uh, following that? Uh, obviously, you know, they, they ramped up all the security. And like I said, they embargoed the news because they didn't want that to get out. Uh, but the damage was done. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't repair it within weeks or a month, but the, the message was delivered. Right. So. Like you, these guys are serious and they, they can hurt us uh, behind, sort of behind the lines. Almost. Right. Yeah. This yeah. is not just a, uh, a bunch of guys doing a raid on a, on a, on a fork on a road kind of stuff, an ambush. Uh, th this was a sophisticated waterborne operation. Uh, and they were all, they were all Mosquito Indians, including the boat captain was wow. a Mosquito Indian. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And the Mosquito Indians really hated the Sandinistas. Oh, yeah. They, got, yeah. they hated them from the beginning. From the I beginning. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Very, well, very passionate about that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So please uh, continue in terms of, you know, what happened next. And, and, yeah. What, what happened next was uh, my headquarters in uh, like most hindquarters would be sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, they came in with a, a bright idea that says, hey, Alex's uh, boys did such a good job on Puerto Cabezas. Let, let them do the same thing to Corinto. Now, Corinto, wow. as you know, it's on the West Coast, and, yeah, that is the, yeah. and that is the commercial belly button for, for everything was Nicaraguan. 
So I said, that's fine and dandy. I know my guys can do it. I will lead them. However, um, they insisted that the boat captains that we were going to use not be Mosquito. They needed to be Spaniards. Now, I was a GS-10, so I, I had very little gravitas. And I did raise my hand. I go, that's stupid. I said, look, they don't get along. They don't trust each other. My guys are used to their, you know, they know that that boat captain is one of theirs. I got overruled. So, uh, again, took my guys again to, uh, in isolation. We trained for several weeks on how to put platter charges on this. The idea was to go, there's a bridge that was from uh, Corinto to the main highway. And the idea was to blow four of the pylons on one side of the bridge, concrete pylons, so it would just collapse over. And that would have taken them months, if not years, to, to uh, recover. Uh, we also gave them two very fast boats. Uh, they could do 50 miles an hour. These were very high speed uh, and technology kind of crap. Uh, the guys went in uh, as planned under dark, made it into the Corinto area, uh, the inlet that goes to where the bridge is. They did notice a lot more um, activity that they anticipated. We had not seen that in the intel. And, and uh, a, an argument ensued. The, uh, the, uh, the captains were very uh, spooked. They said, we, well, maybe we should do, do this. And then the mosquitoes are going to go, we're not going to go in the water because I know you're going to leave us. Now, you, you're talking eight guys. They all have guns. So um, they, they just, they just uh, scrapped the mission. Wow. But here's where, here's where the success of the rescue came in. Boats both started making it out back and both boats break down. Oh, one of them, yeah, one of them breaks down and it, they hid in the mangroves just south of, of I'm sorry, just north of uh, of Corinto. And I, I, I've, I've been up all day, I'm, this is the middle of the night, I'm talking to my guys, we got we got good comms with, uh, with the first boat. The first boat tells me, says, we are f uh, floating like a cork in the southern part of the Gulf of Fonseca. We're sitting ducks here. So I went and, to my... And they to, had a bomb on board. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they, had the, they had the platter charges. Yeah, each right, boat right. had platter charges and, right. and AK-47s and yeah, all kinds yeah. of crap. So they couldn't they, pretend no, they, they were... No, yeah. Fishing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, that, that wasn't going to find it. So yeah. uh, and they knew what was going on. So anyway, I uh, went to my, my, uh, the, the base chief, Leon, super stud, and I said, I ain't leaving my guys behind. He says, what's your plan? My first PJ rescue for real. So I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Field expedient stable rigs, which I made. I had three hanging from each side of the boat to go get my four guys. I would have been the fifth. And uh, got five gallons of gas, five gallons of water, spark plugs and tools. Went to the, with, a, well, with a Honduran helicopter that was assigned to me. Flew into, we're in Nicaragua waters. Yeah. <laughs> we're in Nicaragua waters. And I don't know if you're familiar with what we, we used to call low and slows back then, which is supposed to be 15 feet, uh, 15 knots, and you just come out of the, of the helicopter and, and, and you drop in. Wow. Well, my pilot wouldn't go down that far. So it was, it was 15 knots, but it was probably 35 feet. So and, it wasn't uh, a low and slow. It was a high <laughs> was and slow. A high and slow. <laughs> and uh, we hit the water. From how high? Uh, at at like, least 35 feet, yeah. So that hurts. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I did it right and it didn't. Uh, okay. You have to know how to, how to how to exit and turn. Right. So it's heels, butt, and head, and, and I was fine. Okay. And, and, and I was 30 years old. Okay. okay. If I did that yeah. now, I'd break. <laughs> so. Because um, if you but, hit the wrong, water the wrong way. Cement. Yeah. Ouch. Like, or or you could it. knock you out. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I swam to the boat, and luckily the problem was the spark plugs had fouled up. Ah. So we were able to start that boat and take it back. So I, now I got four guys, two Spaniards and two Mosquitos rescued, but I still have a boat that's stuck in the mangroves. And we knew that more or less where they were. But so we fixed that boat, the one that we re recovered in that same night. I, I still had got no sleep. I go out with uh, a boat captain that was a Cuban Bay of Pigs veteran. Wow. And he was our, he was our, our boat captain. And we had a, a maritime officer with us. And they got their orange slicks or yellow slicks. And I got jeans and a sweatshirt. We get out there, and again, we're, we're in Nicaragua, water is dark. We had, a, uh, we had an aircraft uh, giving us some support for communications. And they told us, the Sandinistas know there's something going on because of the chatter. Yeah. So we're trying to vector in to get our guys. Our guys are literally trying to row and, and nurse the boat where they could out a little further. And when the Sandinistas started doing, um, popping flares. 
looking for us. So we could see it in our immediate horizon. It was a, obviously it was a dark night on purpose. And all these flares are going off. We had a very small silhouette. These boats were maybe 26 foot long and, and they were uh, a center console kind of thing. So very small footprint. And so when they didn't get, uh, when they didn't see anything, they started doing recon by fire. Uh -oh. And they would go pop, 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 up to a sector and see if anybody fired back. Well, I had one M16 and a Browning 9mm, so I wasn't nice. going to shoot anybody. Yeah, yeah, no. um, yeah. So we were out there uh, for several hours, uh, and I'm talking about... And you're still four, trying to find the boat. You haven't still even trying, located still, it. Nope, yeah. nope. Well, we, uh, we, uh, so we were able to get close enough to them that with the communications and the triangulation that was going on, they said, okay, we got them pinpoint. In this tell them, tell them, yeah. tell them to stay there, but you got to get out because now they're deploying their Navy. So we had to turn around and did him out. And again, now I'm on my 48 hours without any sleep. And I am just smoked from two adrenaline wow. highs, right? So yeah. we come back. We came back to the uh, base that we had in. And then the very next morning, now we went as, as macho. We had uh, six piranha boats uh -huh. with the guys loaded for bear, went straight in, got our guys, towed the boat back up. Yeah. In the daylight. Yep. Wow. Yep. First thing in the morning, they said, fuck it, we're going. Really? Yeah. And they, the Sandinistas, they, they'd what, gone to bed for the well, night? Or, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, that they, I guess that they had, you know, retreated. And then all of a sudden, even if they saw it, messing with six, six piranha boats is not something you approach. Right. Uh, they got big guns on it and guys that know how to use them. Right. So right. we were able to, uh, to get that. And uh, Leon put me in for my first agency medal. That was my first agency medal. Wow. Congratulations. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I remember that incident also being yeah, reported. Absolutely. It, it made the news. It was unclear uh, exactly, you know, what had happened, but clearly there was some attempt to to bomb the harbor or something like that. Yeah, yeah and what happened was, unfortunately, uh, again, I, I had nothing, uh, any pre-knowledge of this, but after the fact, that's what prompted the, the mining of the harbors. Yes. Of Corinto Harbor. And that was yes. a big international stink because of that. Right. Um, right. Because we were not successful in, in, in our mission, uh, but uh, at least my rescue was. So know. who mined the harbors? Let's I don't just, know. I have no, I do not know. It wasn't us. Uh, as far as I don't know. But I mean, whether we facilitated or what, I don't know. Uh, that that was not my my department. So Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you go back. Now you, you've, you've done these two missions. You, you go back to the camps that are to, yep. near... Most of them are near the Honduran border. They're all, they're all actually in uh, contested territory. There's no line or fence out there that says, other than the, the river uh, on the Mosquito side, uh, you know, the, the camps were mas o menos on, on, around the border. So, so were the Sandinistas. They are, they, we, we got into a couple of scraps with them because they were literally two, 300 yards camped from uh, our, our Nika camps. Okay, okay. And there are people coming in constantly. The, the more successes we were having inside and the more weapons and ammunition and training we were being able to provide, uh, our deal was if I trained you fully today, tomorrow you, you're going in yeah. and, and getting out there. And that would relieve some people else to come out. And now you have that force. And uh, it, it, it was it was uh, multiplying quite quickly. Uh huh. And so, now, were you involved at all in the political leadership? Of, of the of the contra movement but no you, obviously you must have observed it right well yeah yes to a degree i i was very uh, well uh, um embedded in the estado mayor of the contras uh, leadership so but but the actual political machinations no because you know like i said five days a week monday through friday i'm in a camp i i, I don't even have a radio so yeah no radio well, I mean, I had radio to communicate with my guys. We right. read the net, but, but it's not, not like I could listen to the news or anything. Right, like right, this. right. Yeah, yeah. Incommunicado. Okay, so you're you're trading on the operational side of things. That is correct. Okay, so how does it progress from there? Do you start seizing territory? Because I I remember that there were there were towns mm -hmm. seized and so on. Can can you talk about that? Yeah, we started uh, once we uh, we trained the guys up. Um, we started you know, gaining, you know, 10 miles, 20 miles, 30 miles, little, a little creep in normalcy from our end. And, um, but one of the, the uh, things that we did that was a lot of fun was with the Mosquito Indians. Uh -huh. We had 3,000 Mosquito Indians on this side of the river 
and we trained them all up. Wow. We armed them all up. Wow. And I was there refueling them, re, you know, getting them across to, in boats, across the thing. And, and how did you all communicate 3, with them? Because they, their Spanish is... is their their yes. Spanish is very... Very weird. Well, they, they yeah. had... They had a, uh, I had a, uh, a, uh, an, an interpreter with me. His, his nickname was Pulpo, which means <laughs> octopus. And he spoke English and a little bit of Spanish, but he obviously was a mosquito. And I remember the first time that I was in the mosquito teaching them the RPG-7... I'm explaining to them, I put some cardboard behind it so they could visualize the back blast and the danger, not just focus on what it does at this end, but you know, and, and I'm telling them about, and, and I hear the interpreter going, tiki pali pali pali, 900 meters. And I go, what? I could have said that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, so it, they use Amer uh, English numbers and uh, English products like soap. and uh, yeah, a it's couple a of whole mix are, of everything. It's Spanish, English, yeah. Creole, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, okay. my 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 clo the closest guy, and to this day, as a matter of fact, I talked to him about a month ago. Was uh, Stedman Faggot? Oh yeah, Stedman. Yeah. He's uh, still alive. Uh, he still is. He's doing well. Wow. He's very frustrated because um, oh, I just like I said, I talked to him last month. He says uh, it's just as bad. He, he told me, he says Major, it's just as bad as it was in uh, in eighty one. Oh, I think it's worse. So, it's worse. but yeah, it's really yeah, bad. It, it, yeah. The, I the have a lot of friends really in Nicaragua and. Uh, it's really miserable there right now. Uh, a yeah. lot of businesses have been taken over. Um, a lot of people, a lot of Nicaraguans are leaving. Anyone who was in yeah. business yeah. or had property, yeah. they just take over people's homes. Yeah. Really bad. That's the same old, the same old, same old. Yeah, yeah. But you know, one point for, for the people that are not too aware of, of that, of that uh, episode is that we did dethrone the Sandinistas. Through the guerrilla warfare, they were forced to go to the table and they were forced to have a, a legitimate uh, uh, elections with Overwatch. Yep. And, and they lost. They said, and yeah. they lost. Yeah. Now, the fact that the Ortega bought his way back in uh, a few years later, but at least that program was. Uh, yeah, yeah, it did have an effect for sure. So Rick is right in a sense. The Contra War was successful in that they did force the Sandinistas to the negotiation table, and the Sandinistas did agree to hold free and open elections in 1990. In those elections, everyone expected Daniel Ortega, who was the leader of the Sandinistas at that point, to be reelected. The big surprise was that he lost by a pretty wide margin to Violeta Chamorro, who wasn't really a politician. She was the widow of a slain newspaper editor who had been killed by the Somoza regime. It was his murder that sparked the popular insurrection that overthrew the Samosas. The irony here is that 17 years later, in 2007, Daniel Ortega was re-elected president of Nicaragua and serves as president to this day. Now, the, what was your relationship to the other side of the Contra, which was in Costa Rica? Because that, that was always weird to me. It seemed like two different sets of leadership and... I was always confused about the two different sides of, of, of the Contra, and it didn't seem like they coordinated so well. No, it, it was uh, very antagonistic. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because um, I ended up running the Southern Front 86 through 88. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, wow. I went through spy school. Yeah. I, I went through spy school. I did all my stuff, and I was supposed to go deploy to, to El Salvador. Yeah. When, and this has happened three or four times in my career. Yeah. You know, I'm literally going to Point X, and then uh, Jerry Gruner, who was the division chief, calls me in and he says, um, You're not going to, we don't, we want you to go to Costa Rica. You were asked by name by Joe Fernandez. Yeah. Because he had met me in the north. He says he wants you to go out there and, and run the paramilitary side. Yeah. So, but the big contrast was in 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 Honduras, you know, I I was always you know in, in more military guard. Yeah. The guys are armed. We're in these camps. Where now I'm working out of an embassy coat and tie, and going out and meeting the the uh, the, the mosquitoes. Well, the Southern Front. Yeah. Uh, uh, that were uh, being being literally uh, uh, searched and and looked for by the the Costa Ricans. The Costa Ricans were persecuting us. So we had to oh, establish. Really? Yeah, we had, um, there were two things that Joe Fernandez, when, when I first saw them there, um, Joe says, um, first thing, we've scored one out of the last 10 airdrops. Fix it. I said, copy. Yeah. So you're assigned to the embassy in Costa Rica. 
you, mm-hmm. you you have a cover. You're with the State Department or whatever it is, right? And you're going to work as a, a, at the embassy, and then on the weekends or at night or the afternoon, you sneak whatever away and yep. drive right. out into the uh, up to the border with Nicaragua. No, not so oh. much the border. Okay, uh, not so much the border because what well, what well, we were there was uh, supporting. They had an infrastructure in Costa Rica that was clandestine. Yes. And we were trying to train them in clandestinity because at first they were getting picked up. And that was the the second thing that Joe said. He says, you got to get these guys aware that they are vulnerable because they're getting picked up every uh, every week here. By the Costa Rican government. By the Costa Rican. And, wow. and, and the danger for me was, of course, I could not afford to get picked up. Right. Because if you pick up Nicaragua ones, they just throw you over the fence. Right, right. If they pick up me, then it's a problem. Uh, it's an international th- there's, incident. There's a major problem. Yeah. So I literally came up with French resistance kind of meetings. I yeah. had a van. I had a crash car. Uh, we would go pick up. We tell the mosquitoes, "Okay, I, we want you to drive around town and and be at this place at this time." We would swing by in the van with a crash car in front of us, <laughs> and we would have the meetings in an air conditioned van yeah. about the next air drops and and all this other stuff. Well, crazy. Long story short, uh, uh, the within a month or so, we had completely flipped it. Out of every ten airdrops, we were getting nine in. Wow! So the south, the south was very, very, very happy, and and that was uh, that was be- the beginning of their their real gravitas. So now that they okay. they were being resupplied, they were being uh, taken taken in. So by the time you moved south, <laughs> the north was really moving fast. very active yeah very very active. very active and 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 the south was holding its own but i think once we uh, we were able to fix the airdrop issue yeah and get them resupplied um there was one commander uh called ganso uh-huh. the goose uh-huh. and I, to this day we're friends uh-huh. and he was the baddest guy they had in the south that guy yeah. was just a national born leader and uh had a great following and great successes yeah we started running again giving them the intelligence i would give them the intelligence i was in the van giving okay look here's a target right try to go after this and, and giving them that kind of guidance and also smuggling some of them out for training mm-hmm. uh, we would try to get them through maritime means we had a mm-hmm. maritime exfil uh, capability out of there and um and that's how we were you know getting these guys going there was uh, one incident that, that that will resonate with you, okay? Um, because I'm, I'm I'm at home and around ten o'clock at night I get a call the, on my uh, FDN radio. You're at home uh, in San Jose and in, in Costa Rica. Yeah, I'm in San Jose. Yeah. Yep, and uh, and I get a call from the uh, Camo Center uh-huh. that we had there for the for the Contras. Yeah, and the guy says, Major, we need you to come in. That's not good. So I go yeah. in there and they go. Uh, uh, one of the resupply planes went down. Yeah. And uh, I said, was it, I said, we didn't have an airdrop today. Yeah. He says, no, no, it wasn't for us. It was for FDN units that were that far south. Oh. I think, well, I think Franklin was the commander that was supposed to get the uh, airdrops. Okay. Well, this is the famous Hassenfuss incident. Yeah, yeah. So not knowing Hassenfuss, but yeah. you know, when, when this happened, uh, I told my guys, I said, right now, yeah. I want every single Contra standing shoulder to shoulder and combing their way up to that wreck and getting that guy out. Yeah. Whoever the, if there's any survivors right. and you know, so, but obviously uh, you know, right. the story Hassan Fuss just sat there with all kinds of crap in his pocket <laughs> and phone numbers and yeah. names and all this no, other stuff. That was stuff. a totally uh, amateur operation there. Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend, uh, he was, I think 16 years old and he was flying uh, flights into Nicaragua. The kicker. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Okay, so you're in Costa Rica. Now that you bring it up, how did you coordinate with, or did you did you coordinate with the White House? Because the White House started getting involved with with Lieutenant Colonel North. Was, yeah. was, I, that, I, no, was I, that completely separate? That was completely above my pay grade. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, that, that, that's why Joe Fernandez got into initial travel, and by the way, he was uh, actually uh, reinstated and everything else eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I had no knowledge of any um, e- extracurricular coordination, for lack of a better word. <laughs> right, of the political um, stuff that was going on. Yeah, yeah I, I did get dragged into the investigation, the, the Contra stuff. Yeah. Because uh, as a, not as a subject, but as a witness. Yeah. And, and it was great for, for us because I could tell them, I said, yeah, I knew when these airdrops were coming in, right. I would write them up. I would say they got these airdrops. Right. 
uh, I wasn't coordinating. Yeah, I don't know where they came from or where the materials came from or how they were bought. They were bought and paid for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah, because they, they, you know the the problem with the airdrops was that you had guys that don't have real military skills and some can barely read and write, yeah. giving you eight digit coordinates. Yeah. For a plane that doesn't have what what we have now. Yeah. So I reversed that. I said from now on, we pick landmarks, triangulate. And I tell you where to be, and then I convert that to a, a digit coordinates. That's where we went from nine successes out of ten. Right. Uh, as we turned it around. Right. So let's go back to uh, Costa Rica because uh, that that to me is very interesting. Um, and are you dealing with Eden Pastora at that at that at that? No, uh, he he was in and out of there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but he's I, a I character. Not, I, he yeah, is a character. Total character. Yeah. Very charismatic, but very uh, controversial also and big ego. The leader of the Contras in the South was a man known as Eden Pastora, a very colorful and controversial character. A hero of the Sandinista Revolution, he took over the National Assembly in 1978 in spectacular fashion and to many became the hope of Nicaragua. When the Sandinistas gained control in 1979, most Nicaraguans assumed he would become the leader of the Sandinistas. But Pastora was not as ideological as the other leaders. He was in favor of a representative government and quickly fell out of favor with the other comandantes. Unhappy with the direction in which the Sandinistas were moving, he joined the Contras in the South, which became known as the Southern Front. And that Southern Front was politically very important to, to the U.S. government. Yeah. I mean, I found that out after the fact. Yeah. Um, because the, um, the Southern Front, since it was composed of former Sandinista leaders, yeah. added a, a dimension that further negated the, fa the, the fallacy of they're all Somosistas. Right. You know, so in the South, that didn't exist. Yes. In the North, it wasn't a reality. Yeah. Uh, so politically, for voting and everything else, that was a real big deal. Yeah. The Miskito were, were a huge, uh, both North and South, yeah. because they are recognized as Native Americans by our Native Americans who were politicking on their behalf. It was right. very interesting dynamics. Right, very interesting dynamic. Yeah, my, se my sense of it was always that the North was run by the, the Somosistas, right? That was yeah. kind of the popular perception. So it's yeah, interesting yeah. that you're saying, you know, that wasn't really true. Well, I mean, it's they were run by them because they were the leadership. Like yeah. I said, Enrique Bermudez was a colonel, but right. Enrique Bermudez was an engineer. Yeah. He wasn't a combat colonel. Right. And, and like I said, he was one of the, the, the nicest men I ever met in my life. Yeah. And there was a couple of rough characters in there that were somosistas, yeah. but... You know, after the first tier, yeah. everybody else are just, just civilians. guys coming in yeah. who, 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 who were, had it with the Sandinista regime. That's right. Sandinista yep. regime. So you're there from 86 to 88, you said? That's correct. Okay. So you were there when the when the bombing happened, right? In Costa Rica where they went after Eden Pastora. Yeah. 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 Was that all like a, a surprise to you? Was that? Yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, that was a Sandinista hit. Yeah. Uh, they try to they try to blow him up at the border. Yeah. He was there at, uh, on, the, on the river. Yeah. And uh, I had one of my guys actually was in that camp. Blanca, I think yeah. it was. Yeah. And uh, one of my guys well, uh, that I had trusted was was there when the incident happened. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was pretty, pretty awful. close call. I, I yeah. knew some journalists who were uh, yes. who were there uh, badly, badly injured. Hurt. Yep. Yeah. And, and for a long time. The story was that the CIA was had, had tried to kill Eden Pastora yeah, because yeah. He, he there was a political disagreement or something like that. And I think recently, in the last couple of years, some some uh, investigators tracked the bomber, and it turned out that he had been, or, or I think the Sandinistas have even admitted it, they had hired this guy. They, they had was, hired a yeah, hitman, yeah. Yeah. The other story never made sense, but that was sort of the... The popular story that was floated out there yeah yeah well you, you touched on something and that's why i was smirking is because the reason that i wrote this book yeah is because i really take personal how my agency is represented in in the media yeah in the media and in novels yeah. and in and in hollywood and yeah. everything else and you know uh, we're always uh, portrayed as immoral, corrupt, right. you know, uh, maniacal assassins. Right. <laughs> and 
not, nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah. So the, the idea of the book was to, there's a lot of stories that are not about me in the book, yeah. that are about colleagues and things done that I was part of. Mm -hmm. And what I try to do with the book is show people real, sexy operations, yeah. not Jason Bourne crap, right. and done by real operators. Right. You know, and when you're doing our operations, first thing that happens is exhaustive, Intel collection and Intel analysis. Mm -hmm. Then you have expert planning mm -hmm. and you have uh, excellent execution. Yeah. And that takes time and dedication. Sure. And uh, one of the things that I have throughout the book are vignettes of the courage that, not just operators, yeah. the courage that everybody has out there uh, in, in my ranks. Yeah. I, I, I could have never worked with a, a greater bunch of people. Right. And, and the other thing is oversight. Yeah. I mean, everybody talks about the agency doesn't have oversight. Yeah. So I try to document yeah. that process in there quite a bit. Yeah, I think that's a big fallacy. I mean, you know, I, I've written books with several ex-CIA agents. And, uh, you know, one thing that always stands out is, is all the approvals and all the oversight of everything they do. Mm. And also yeah. there's all... What they're able to do is it's it's very uh, it's very particular. It's very deline legally delineated, right? Not, you can't do anything yeah. without approval. So, you know, the it, idea it that even there goes are just rogue people running around, they might be rogue people working for somebody else who call themselves CIA, but they're yeah, not that CIA. Happens. That happens. No, and, yeah. You know, they, they, it goes to the degree that we we cannot use operational funds from one particular program yeah. to another. It's called fenced funds. So if you yeah. get funding for this particular mission or this particular profit and you have a 50% leftover, you cannot use it for something that isn't reauthorized. Yeah. So it's even it's not only a political string, but there's a financial string right. for verification for, for our, for our right. operations. And everything is approved all the way to the White House. So the idea That's that right. the political leadership doesn't know what the CIA is doing is just absolutely untrue. If they, yeah. if they do it, then the president has approved it, and it's come That's down correct. the ranks. Yeah. Well, that's what we were created to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, after the bombing of, of Eden Pastora, what, what did that do to the southern Costa Rican part of it? Was it have a big I think effect? There was a, yeah. they, I think there was a temporary disruption like everything else. Okay. You know, people got to go underground for a few weeks. Right. But uh, remember, the majority of the guys were not at the border. Okay. Pastora was at the border. Right. The majority of the guys like Ganso and all these guys were deep in. Yeah. And they were, they were, they were kicking tuckets. Yeah. Know, so. Yeah. They were deep into Nicaragua. Yep. They had camps. They had yep. cities Absolutely. taken over and so yeah, on and yeah, so forth. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. At what point did the Sandinistas decide, okay, we're going to sit down and talk to you guys? Well, that, that, was, that was long after my time. Okay. Uh, I believe this was the early 90s when, when they finally were forced to some kind of negotiation. Um, but I, I was, out of, I was out, of, uh, out of that by then. Okay. Yeah. And how were, affected were you by the whole... Ron Contra, that story breaking. You know, uh, again, so high above my pay grade, right? That you know, I'm 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 hearing what I'm hearing in the media. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what really happened. I wasn't I wasn't privy to any of this. Right. I got to I, I got to meet Ali North years after this was over, right. and and, some, and uh, I've seen him probably two dozen times since then. Yeah. Um, but um, I had no no connectivity to that whole weapons exchange or any of that 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 i know i know what you know from reading the news is right. all i know on that i yeah. was living in new york city and i had known like arturo cruz jr and some of these people i had met them in nicaragua right because they had been sandinistas right and I, I was living in manhattan and this is maybe 82 83 and i got a call to meet to have lunch with them right so i go to this lunch and they're all staying at the carlisle hotel and wearing Armani suits, Arturo Cruz Jr. is with Don Hall. Remember yep. her? Oh, yeah. Right? This blonde who works at the White House. And I was like, the last time I'd seen these guys, they were was in Managua. They had beards. They were wearing fatigues. Now they're in New York City at the, staying at the Carlisle Hotel wearing Smoking Armani suits. Smoking big Cuban cigars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> and taking me out to this fancy lunch. And I'm like, 
what the heck's going on? And they said, oh, the Contras. Like, we're working with Caledo, and we're up here. I said, well, what are you doing up here? And they said, well, we're up here, and we're, we're raising money from, like, wealthy uh, 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 widows uh, and, and wealthy people, conservative people, anti-communists. And I said, well, how are you, how, how do you know, like, who to even talk to, right? And they said, oh, there's this lieutenant colonel at the White House, and he gives us these lists of names, and then we go, like, knock on people's <laughs> doors. And I'm like, well, who is this guy? And they said, oh, Ali North. While the Contra War was raging in Nicaragua, a scandal broke out in the United States in late 1985 that became known as the Iran-Contra Affair. It was revealed that Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North at the White House had been diverting proceeds from sales of weapons to the Iranians, who were our enemies, to help fund the Contras in Nicaragua. This violated an amendment known as the Bolin Amendment, which had been passed by the U.S. Congress. The subsequent scandal was investigated by Congress and resulted in several dozen indictments of administration officials, including then-Secretary of State Caspar Weinberger. Eleven convictions resulted, some of which were vacated on appeal. Rick went on to serve almost three decades in the CIA in a very distinguished and high-level career, including playing a pivotal role in the War on Terror. At the end of his career, he received the highest award given to retired CIA officers, known as the CIA Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. I think the point that Rick makes most eloquently is that while he didn't choose the missions the CIA sent him on, he and his fellow officers executed them bravely and honorably, motivated by a strong belief in preserving the personal freedoms that we value so dearly. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, and don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines. (laughs) 